We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 34 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, April 7th, 2021, the day after an outstanding season opening win for the Nationals. I tell you, it was shades of 2019 on Tuesday at Nationals Park. The 2020 Nats never came from behind to win and obviously did not have fans at home games. The 2019 Nats, all they did, it felt like, was come from behind to win. And obviously, they did have fans at home games. The Nats on Tuesday rallying to win. The Nats on Tuesday overcoming all kinds of obstacles to win. And yes, the Nats on Tuesday with fans in the ballpark. Official attendance of 4,000. 
801. We can have more. We should have more. Max Serzer believes the Nats should have more fans in the ballpark, but at least you did have some fans and they witnessed really a classic in a lot of ways in terms of a season opening victory. It's hard to top what the Nats did facing the three-time defending National League's champion Atlanta Braves, rallying to win, getting a walk-off hit from the franchise player in Juan Soto. The game felt like a return to normalcy. The game felt like a return to a time that we have been missing very much. I'll be getting into all of it shortly, but it was great to see. But hello and welcome toward the end of Tuesday's installment of this podcast. I told you something. It was a special something. I said I had something special in store for you regarding the Washington football team. I didn't want to say it, didn't want to jinx it, but I did end up tweeting it on Tuesday afternoon. Gus Ferrat, the former Washington quarterback, a man who has served as a mentor for a current Washington quarterback, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Gus Ferrat will be joining me on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Outstanding insight on Fitzpatrick, on why Fitzpatrick has had the career that he has had. And yes, I do get the Gus bus to open up about his time with the Washington football team. We talk Gus versus Heath Schuler back in the day. We talk Norv Turner. We talk Gus's time with the Denver Broncos and Mike Shanahan. We do some story time with Gus Farad. I think you're going to enjoy this. I know I enjoyed talking with Gus. But yes, the Gus bus in effect on the Al Galdi podcast coming up in just a bit. Also on the show, the Atlanta Falcons supposedly are entertaining offers for the number four overall pick in the upcoming NFL draft. Should the Washington football team be interested? Is the Washington football team interested? Could we possibly be on the verge of Washington making a massive trade up from 19 to four to take a potential franchise quarterback? I have a very strong take on this. I'll provide that take little bit later on. I will talk Capitals. Big game for them on Tuesday night at the New York Islanders, and unfortunately, another loss. Though at least the Caps didn't give up eight goals this time at the Islanders, so you at least had that going for you. Uh, Speaking of losing in New York, the Orioles spanked at the Yankees once again. I'll get into these losses for the Caps and the O's up in New York. You know, the Orioles now have lost 12 consecutive games at Yankee Stadium, a new Orioles club record for longest road losing streak to the Yankees. The Orioles, look, they've lost a lot in recent years, but no team has done them dirtier than the Yankees in recent years. And man, has that been the case over these last few nights. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. Did you see, speaking of tweeting, what the Washington football team tweeted on Tuesday? The launch of the Fan Ambassador Network. Yes, the Fan Ambassador Network. Are you ready to become a Fan Ambassador? Said the team in a tweet, we're looking for a diverse group to provide a fan perspective through our rebrand process. And if you go to washingtonfootball.com slash fan, you find the following. The Washington football team FAN, F-A-N, all in caps, Fan Ambassador Network. Hey, get it? Fan Ambassador Network. F-A-N, fan, is a diverse group of Washington football fans who will serve as the voice of the fan base and provide perspective to the organization as we prepare for the 2021 season and throughout 
our rebrand process. Members of the fan will share ideas and feedback across many areas of the Washington football game day and fan experience, including, and get ready for this list, community to help define the team's presence throughout the DMV, culinary to share thoughts on in-stadium and tailgate event food and beverage, culture to give insights on local art and lifestyle, wow, as well as team history, entertainment to provide ideas around integrating areas like music, dance, and gaming, fashion to discuss opinions on merchandise and new gear, family experience to help create game day activities that are enjoyable for parents and kids, Sunday fun day to represent the crowd looking to take advantage of every minute of their weekend while also safely rooting on the team. In return, our fan, F-A-N, all caps, will enjoy unique team gifts and access to exciting opportunities as we continue our rebrand journey. Are you or someone you know fan material? You can fill out a brief form to nominate yourself or someone else for the Fan Ambassador Network. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm all in on this, man. Count me in as a Fan Ambassador. In fact, because you can nominate both yourself uh, and someone else, you know, you, you have the choice when you fill out the form, I say we all nominate each other for the Fan Network, okay? We, we need to set up some sort of group chat and get our efforts organized here. But let's do this. I mean, the thousands of you who make up the Al Galdi podcast community. Let's come together and nominate each other for the fan network. Let us all be fan ambassadors and revel in community and culinary and culture and entertainment and fashion when it comes to our football team. Why the heck not? Let us do this. Let's join hands and all be fans, F-A-N, all caps, together. If nothing else, all right, look at it like this. If nothing else, do it for Danny, okay? First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes. Show some appreciation to the Danny, all right? He just went through a lot, buying out his disgruntled minority investors at a discounted price with a major debt waiver from the NFL. It's not easy being the Danny, okay? So show some gratitude and be a fan. Why don't you? Well, speaking of fans, lowercase F-A-N-S, they were in attendance, finally, at Nationals Park for the first time since 2019 on Tuesday, and they witnessed a glorious Nationals win to begin their season. We'll be getting into the many things to like about that Nat season opening victory momentarily, but there are also many things to like about what one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland, has going on. John Grandland, master real estate agent in the DMV, is changing the way that real estate is done in the DMV. He is eliminating the commission, right? It's the thing that has always been the most burdensome when it comes to selling a home. How much of the money you're about to get do you have to give to the real estate agent? Outrageous commissions, a staple in real estate forever. They're going bye-bye thanks to John Granlin. John G. with Real Broker is selling homes for free. Yes, you heard that right, for free. And there's no catch here. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more. You're not hunting for buyers for months on end with John Grandland. He gets the job done. And when you finalize a sale, that which you would normally pay to your listing agent stays right in your pocket. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars that remain with you And then John helps you find the home of your dreams and you are good to go. John Grandland, expansive services 
at the lowest commission possible, zero. You can't go lower than zero. To find out more about this program, again, it's game-changing. And also, to find your home's value, check out the website, johngsellsforfree.com. The website says it all. It even rhymes. johngsellsforfree.com. Zero commission. Better yet, call John Grandland. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. Say, hey, John. I want what I heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, the zero commission deal, and John will give it to you. 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland, zero commission real estate. Start packing. All right, so there were so many reasons to believe that the Nationals would lose on Tuesday in their season opening game against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. Here we were, finally, the Nationals 2021 season was beginning. The season was beginning with the Nats missing four starting position players due to COVID-19 protocols, missing the team's best reliever in Brad Hand due to COVID-19 protocols. You're facing, oh, by the way, the three-time defending National League East champion Braves. Your starting pitcher, your ace, Max Scherzer, begins the game, begins the season by giving up a home run on his very first pitch, Ronald Acuna Jr. on the first pitch in the first game of the national season goes yard. It ends up being the first of four homers given up by Max Scherzer. Nats are down 3 nothing in the second, down 5-4 in the eighth. Like the list of reasons for the Nationals to have lost on Tuesday was a mile long. And yet the Nationals ended up winning a 6-5 walk-off victory over the Braves at Nationals Park, at which, yes, there were fans in attendance, an announced crowd of 4,801. Max Scherzer after the game, quote, I don't understand why we can't have fans in the upper deck here. We can have more fans in here safely. I would love an explanation, end quote. I would too, Max. I would too. We talked about this at length on Tuesday's podcast, the uh, latest when it comes to the D.C. Mayor, Muriel Bowser, and her not allowing fans at all at Capitals and Wizards games at Capital One Arena and uh, still not allowing the Nats to have more than the 5,000 fans per game at Nats Park that the Nats are currently allowed. The Nats want more than 5,000 fans per game. For now, they're being told no. The bigger issue to me is with the Caps and the Wiz because, again, they have zero fans. 5,000 fans for Nats games, that's better than nothing. But, yeah, man, I think we can do more than 5,000. But at the very least... The 4,800 plus in attendance on Tuesday witnessed a very special win. The kind of win, like I said, that brought you back to 2019. The kind of win that brings me back to one of the great traditions I have had on my shows over the years. When the Nationals win a game, like the game the Nats won on Tuesday, we do the countdown. If you are unfamiliar with the countdown, it is the countdown to Davey Martinez, prize possession. The great phrase, a phrase we became very familiar with, especially 2018 and then even more so in 2019. It is the phrase that pays when it comes to Davey. You know he's proud of his boys on a day like this off a win like that. So here we go. Three, two, one. Davey, give it to me. I'm proud of the boys. (laughs) There it is, Davey. Davey, the Nationals delivering, delivering big time with that win 
on Tuesday. So, so many different ways we could truly start our conversation about this game. But let us begin with the hero, Juan Soto. Juan freaking Soto. He did not have a good exhibition season. We talked about that on this podcast. He was not having a good game on Tuesday. Oh, for four. But he comes up in the bottom of the ninth with the game tied at five. And what does Juan Soto do? He delivers. On a 3-0 pitch, Juan Soto walk-off RBI single to center field to provide the Nationals with the win. That's what a franchise player does, right? He may be scuffling. He may be struggling. He may not be at his best for whatever reason. But Juan Soto on Tuesday, your starting right fielder, your number three batter, facing the Braves reliever, Will Smith. Juan Soto getting jiggy with it on Will Smith, smacking that 3-0 pitch. Had the green light to swing, obviously. You give a guy like Soto the green light in a spot like that. And Juan Soto delivers the walk-off. RBI single. But here's the thing about the Nationals offensively on Tuesday. It was far from just being about Juan Soto. It was far from just being about Trey Turner. Oh yeah, Trey Turner was available, played, and played well. That was the storyline on Tuesday. We thought that Trey Turner would be among those Nationals not available for the beginning of this season due to COVID-19 protocols. Trey Turner was not seen working out at Nationals Park on Monday, but for whatever reason, and there's still a lot of mystery with this COVID-19 protocol stuff in terms of what's the timeline, who might get cleared before who else, why is this guy out, but that guy not out, did this guy test positive versus is this guy just a close contact? Like, there's a lot we don't know, but Trey Turner was out there on Tuesday, and Trey Turner came through. Big one out, two run homer to left field off the brave starter Drew Smiley in the bottom of the third inning. And Trey also got hit by a pitch in that Nationals one run ninth inning. Nats fortuitously began that bottom of the ninth with their one, two, three batters. Victor Robles, Trey Turner, Juan Soto, all three guys getting on base. No plate appearance bigger, obviously, than Soto's. But Trey Turner getting hit by the pitch, uh, getting on base there for Soto. Here's the thing, though, about the Nationals offense on Tuesday. So because the Nats are depleted, and they are, four different position players not available to the Nationals for this game, for this beginning of the season. You're talking Josh Bell, Kyle Schwarber, Josh Harrison, and Jan Gomes. And those are just your four starting position players. There are others not available to you. Your backup catcher, Alex Avila, not available. Uh, Another bench guy, Jordy Mercer, not available. Two-fifths of your starting rotation, Patrick Corbin and John Lester, not available, in addition to your best reliever and Brad Hand. All told, nine players for the Nationals not available to begin this season. So with that as a backdrop, the Nationals lineup on Tuesday to begin the season included Hernan Perez as the starting second baseman at number six batter, Andrew Stevenson as the starting left fielder at number seven batter, Jonathan Lucroy as the starting catcher at number eight batter. Understand this, Jonathan Lucroy just joined the Nats over the weekend. He agreed with the Nats on a minor league contract on Saturday night. He's in his age 35 season. He, over the last three years, 2018 through 2020, played for four teams, Oakland, the Angels, the Cubs, and Boston, and was not good. And guess who the top guy off the bench was for the Nats on Tuesday? Carter Keboom. And all of these guys came through for the Nats on Tuesday. 
the Nats got so much clutch production from their numbers six, seven, and eight batters, talking Perez, Stevenson, and Lucroy, and Kivum delivered off the bench as well. Perez had a two-out single in the Nats' two-run second and drew a one-out five-pitch walk to load the bases in the Nats' one-run eighth. Stevenson was tremendous. He had a bunch of quality plate appearances, including two singles, a one-out single in the bottom of the seventh, and a one-out game-tying infield single in the Nats' one-run eighth to tie the game at five. Lucroy, like I said, abysmal as a batter over the last three years. Lucroy, a two-out, two-run double down the left field line on an 0-2 pitch in a Nationals two-run second inning. Now, he did get thrown out a third where he was out by a mile, but how about that? The same Jonathan Lucroy, who over the last three seasons, a 237 batting average, 297 on base percentage, 338 slugging percentage, that Jonathan Lucroy, essentially an automatic out over the last three years, down in the count 0-2 with two outs in the bottom of the second, delivers a two-run double for the Nationals' first two runs batted in in the 2021 season. Go figure. And then Keyboom, freaking Keyboom, option to AAA Rochester a few Saturdays ago. That same Carter Keyboom is on the Nats to begin the season because they have a few other options. And Keyboom comes through off the bench on Tuesday. Bottom of the seventh, draws a two-out pinch, eight-pitch walk despite having been down in the count at one point, 1-2. You know, that was another thing about all these bottom-of-the-order guys for the Nats on Tuesday. It's not just that they produced. They produced in some tough predicaments. Keyboom drawing the pinch walk, despite having been down 1-2. Lucroy delivering the two-run double with two outs, despite having been down 0-2. Like some really good plate appearances by these guys. And they all delivered on Tuesday. Look, I said it. I am very worried about the Nationals' lack of depth for this season. Boy, for at least one day, depth was not a problem. All these guys coming through for the Nationals in this 6-5 walk-off win over the Atlanta Braves. So Soto came through. Turner came through. The the, the, the retreads, the mercenaries came through. That was a great line that Lucroy, by the way, had after the game. Quote, I feel like a mercenary, kind of. Yeah, you kind of are. You kind of are, but you delivered. But how about Victor Robles, too? You know, Victor Robles had an excellent exhibition season. We weren't quite sure what to make of that, right? Victor Robles has been underwhelming as a batter over his first few major league seasons. Well, Victor Robles is the national starting center fielder, of course, but also their new leadoff batter. Davey Martinez is giving Robles the opportunity this season to be the Nats' everyday number one batter. And Robles, like I said, the great exhibition season, how much that meant we did not know. But Robles on Tuesday, a very good game offensively. He had a single and two walks, and the two walks were beauties. A one-out seven-pitch walk in the Nats' two-run third, a two-out seven-pitch walk in the bottom of the seventh, and then a first-pitch leadoff single in that Nats' one-run ninth. It was Robles who got things going in that bottom of the ninth inning. Ryan Zimmerman was the cleanup batter. Obviously, no bell, so Zim is playing for his base. He had a couple of singles, a two-out single in the bottom of the third, a one-out single on an 0-2 pitch in the Nats' one-run eighth. But I tell you, as significant as anything that Zimmerman did on Tuesday was the great defensive play that he made in the top of the seventh. A nifty backhanded catch of a one-hop throw by the second baseman, Hernan Perez, on Ronald Acuna Jr.'s one-out first pitch RBI ground out in that top of the seventh. Zimmerman, you know, we, we know how this is going to be once Josh Bell is available. Bell's going to play the bulk of the games and get the bulk of the plate appearances, but it, it's going to be essentially a platoon split where Bell faces righty pitching, which is about 75% of the pitching, 
in Major League Baseball. Zim will face lefty pitching, but Zim also will be utilized as a late-inning defensive replacement. And you saw why in that spot in the top of the seventh. A very clutch catch, a very key pick by Zim at first of that one-hop throw by Hernan Perez to limit the damage in what ended up being that one-run seventh inning for the Braves, where they ended up taking the 5-4 lead. Now, when it came to the Nats starter on Tuesday, Max Scherzer, the ace, and it was an odd outing for Max, although if you've been tracking Max in recent seasons, you've actually seen the likes of this before. So Max Scherzer begins the game on Tuesday by giving up a home run on the very first pitch he throws. Two batters later, Max Scherzer gives up another home run. Top of the second, Max gives up a third home run. Top of the third, Max gives up a fourth home run. Yes, Max Scherzer gave up four home runs on Tuesday, but all of them were solo shots. And after the last of the four home runs, Max largely settled down and Max actually ended up with a final line that aside from the four homers, and I know the four homers are not insignificant, like you can't just write them off. But aside from that, if you if there's such a thing as like putting them off to the side, at least actually was quite good. His final line is as follows. Four runs in six innings on the four solo homers. He only gave up one other hit. It was a single. He issued no walks. He had nine strikeouts. He threw 60 of his 91 pitches for strikes. Like literally, the only issue was the home run, the four solo homers. But otherwise, nine strikeouts versus no walks. The only other hit he gave up was the single, and he pounded the zone. 60 of his 91 pitches went for strikes. But the homers were the problem, no doubt. Uh, very first pitch of the game, very first pitch of the Nats season, giving up the leadoff bomb to Ronald Acuna Jr. on a shot to left field. Max then gives up a one-out solo shot to the notorious Nationals killer, Freddie Freeman, on a bomb to right field. Top of the second, Max gives up a leadoff homer to Dansby Swanson to right center, despite having had him down in the count at 1.12. Max in the top of the third gives up another leadoff homer. This one, a leadoff full count homer to Acuna to left center. So two homers for Acuna. Freeman and Swanson get the others. There were three leadoff homers by the Braves on Tuesday. Like, you can't just uh, ignore all that. That's true. And it is worth highlighting this. Max did have a bit of a home run problem in 2020. Uh, Max in 2020 had his worst home run rate since 2011. Home run rate is simply home runs per nine innings. Max in 2020, 1.337 home runs allowed per nine innings. His worst such rate since 2011. So the long ball was an issue for Max in 2020. It obviously was an issue on Tuesday. But if all you're doing is giving up solo homers, even if you give up four, it's not the end of the world. You can work with that. Now, Max is an ace. He's better than that. You, you know, this can't be a regular thing where he's given up three, four homers a game. But nine strikeouts versus no walks, you take that. 60 and 91 pitches for strikes, you certainly take that. This is going to be such an interesting storyline for the Nationals in 2021. Where is Max at? We know he's older. You know, is he in fact beyond his peak and the Cy Young level Max of previous seasons is never to be seen again? Or is there still another Cy Young caliber season left in that right arm? Because the truth is this, since the middle of the 2019 season, Max has come down. He's dealt with various ailments. His performance has been not bad, 
but not great. You know, he's gone from being an A-plus starting pitcher to like a B-plus starting pitcher. And B-plus is very nice. You know, most guys would kill to be B-plus, but Max Scherzer's different, right? He's a future Hall of Famer. So is A-plus still a possibility or do we just have to get used to, hey, this is kind of what Max is now. He's still better than average, but he's no longer at that elite level. Bullpen for the Nationals on Tuesday. Four natural relievers combining to allow one run in three innings. Ultimately, the bullpen gets the job done. Now, it wasn't always pretty. Uh, Kyle Finnegan in the top of the seventh did give up a run in recording just two outs. Uh, he kind of got nickeled and dimed in doing this. Uh, gave up a one-out single to Austin Riley on a one-two pitch. Gave up a one-out first pitch bunt single to Kristen Pache on a great bunt toward third base. Gave up a one-out full count eight-pitch walk by a pinch-hitting Pablo Sandoval, despite him having been down in the count at one point, one-two. And then came that Acuna RBI ground out on which Zimmerman made the nifty backhanded catch of the one-hop throw by Hernan Perez. So the run off Finnegan in the top of the seventh, but the rest of the way, the bullpen was essentially locked down. Wander Suero, Kyle McGowan, and Daniel Hudson combined for two and a third scoreless and hitless innings. Now, Hudson did give up a shot that initially was ruled a home run, but clearly was foul and then was changed to that. And Hudson did then issue a two-out, five-pitch walk of Johan Camargo to bring Acuna back to the plate with nobody on in the top of the ninth. So to me, with Hudson, it is still an adventure. You know, he had a very bad 2020. He had a very bad exhibition season. And given that Hudson was bad last season, I don't think you just write off the exhibition season. He's had a problem giving up home runs. And that walk to Camargo could have been a killer because, again, it brought Acuna back to the plate. But thankfully, the Nationals ended up getting out of that inning unscathed. Look, you're without your top reliever in Brad Hand. Will Harris is injured. You know, you're going to have to piecemeal these bullpen outings together. So four guys combining to give up one run in three innings. I think you take that and you run if you're Davey Martinez. Nationals did it. They got the job done. They pull off the victory. Yes, of course, it's just the one game. But especially given the gauntlet-like nature of the first nine games of this national season, three games against the Braves at Nationals Park, then three games at the reigning, defending World Series champion Los Angeles Dodgers, then three games at the revitalized St. Louis Cardinals, right, who acquired Nolan Arenado this past offseason. This is a tough stretch, and we don't know how long you're going to be without these various guys, right? Josh Bell, Kyle Schwarber, Josh Harrison, Jan Gomes, Alex Avila, Jordy Mercer, Patrick Corbin, John Lester, Brad Hand. You're missing a lot of guys. You're missing a lot of boys, as Davey would say. So while you're minus nine boys to begin the season, can you just tread water, you know? Can, can, can you just stay around 500? You know, as, as I've said it, these first nine games, if you can go four, four and five or better, you're in good shape, okay? Because by then, you'll have most, if not all, these guys back. So if you can just avoid an ugly start here, you know, can you avoid three and six, two and seven, that kind of a thing? If you can do that, then I think you'll be in good shape coming out of the COVID-19 mess, coming out of the very difficult first nine games of the season. But it is something else when you look at what the Nats are dealing with here right now. That season opening 26-man roster that the Nats announced on Tuesday, Nats finally announcing their season opening roster, right? Because they had not yet played a game. I mean, the roster includes... Jonathan Lucroy and Tress Barrera as the two catchers. The roster includes among the infielders Luis Garcia and Carter Keboom, both of whom were optioned to AAA Rochester on March 27th. The roster includes among the outfielders Yadiel Hernandez and Cody Wilson. Who? What? 
The roster includes among the relievers Sam Clay, Ryan Harper, and Kyle McGowan. This is what you're dealing with here right now with the Nationals. But you know what? It's okay if you're going to pull off wins like the win you engineered on Tuesday. So next up for the Nats is a doubleheader on Wednesday. It is a traditional doubleheader. So one game will follow the other. Uh, The doubleheader begins at 12.05 at Nationals Park. Your pitching matchups, game one, Eric Fetty versus Max Freed. Game two, Steven Strasburg versus Hauskar, Enoa. And yes, it's super early, and it's probably not even worth mentioning this, but I will go ahead and mention it just because it's a nice thing to know. The Atlanta Braves, so far this season, are 0-4, swept at the Philadelphia Phillies, and now this loss at the Nationals on Tuesday. I'm proud of your boys. Yes, sir, Davey. It is a beautiful time of year. Baseball is beginning. Also, everyone's favorite tournament is coming up. Golfers in Augusta, Georgia, getting ready to compete for the coveted jacket. DraftKings, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is putting you in the center of the action by giving you a shot to land in the green. This week, DraftKings is giving you 100 to 1 odds on the golfer of your choosing to finish in the top 10. If you haven't tried DraftKings, now is the time. You can turn $1 into $100. It's very simple. Just pick any golfer from this weekend's tournament in Augusta, and if that golfer finishes in the top 10, you win $100. 100 to 1 odds on an offer like this does not come around often. So sign up now, DraftKings Sportsbook, to get in on all of the action and choose your golfer before the tournament tees off Thursday morning. DraftKings, it's safe and secure. It's reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. How do you get this great deal? Again, $1 to win $100. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code GALDI when you sign up to turn $1 into $100. If the golfer of your choosing finishes in the top 10 of this weekend's tournament in Augusta. Again, that's code GALDI to turn $1 into $100 for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Virginia only, new customers only, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call the Virginia Problem Gambling Helpline at 888-532-3500. So a terrific Tuesday for the Nationals. Not the case, though, for the Capitals. They lost at the New York Islanders 1-0 on Tuesday night in what was a big game for the Caps. Another one of these big games with the Islanders this season. Caps and Islanders now tied atop the East Division at 54 points. The good news is that the Pittsburgh Penguins got ripped again in an 8-4 loss at the New York Rangers on Tuesday night. This off the Pens losing at the Boston Bruins this past Saturday afternoon, 7-5. So two consecutive losses for Pittsburgh, a combined 15 goals allowed over those two losses for Pittsburgh. The Pens are third in the East Division at 50 points. But for the Caps, this was another regulation loss. It's a third regulation loss in five games. All five of those games coming during a road trip here to New York and New Jersey over eight days. This was not a great road trip for the Capitals to New York and New Jersey to face the Islanders, Rangers, and Devils. The Caps go just 2-3-0 and 
on that road trip and included on this road trip were some bad losses. 5-2 at the Rangers on March 30th, 8-4 at the Islanders on April 1st. one nothing on Tuesday night at the Islanders isn't the end of the world, but it was another regulation loss. I mean, just to give you an idea of the frequency with which the Caps had been losing in regulation, prior to this five-game road trip, the Caps had suffered just two regulation losses over the team's previous 18 games. Caps now have suffered three regulation losses over the last five games, and the Caps with this one nothing loss at the Islanders on Tuesday night shut out for the first time this season. One of many former Capitals goaltenders floating out there in the NHL, Semyon Varlamov of the Islanders, uh, shutting out the Caps to the tune of 29 saves. So old Varley did the Caps dirty. Uh, old Trotsy, Barry Trotz and his Islanders doing the Caps dirty on Tuesday night. The thing with this game on Tuesday night was the puck possession battle. It's something I bring up all the time. It's something that matters a lot in hockey. Not just how many goals are you scoring, but are you controlling the puck? Where are you when it comes to shot attempts, okay? Especially five on five. Take out special teams. Take out power plays and penalty kills. Five on five, are you controlling the puck or aren't you? Because in a lot of ways, that's a better measure than just pure goals in terms of who's outplaying who. The Caps per natural stat trick on Tuesday night, 45 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Islanders, 54, including 10 5-on-5 high danger shot attempts to the Islanders, 23. So it's not just that you were minus 9 in terms of 5-on-5 shot attempts, you were minus 13. You were more than doubled up in terms of high danger 5-on-5 shot attempts. In terms of shots on goal, the Caps were minus 10, 29 shots on goal, to the Islanders 39. And so much of all of this was the third period. This was another game in which the Caps did not play a complete game. And in a spot like this, a showdown for first in the East Division, there's no excuse for not playing a full 60 minutes. The lone goal of the game was an even strength goal by Brock Nelson, 13.05 into the third period. The Caps in that third period had 10 shots on goal to the Islanders 20. And per natural stat trick, had 14 five-on-five shot attempts to the Islanders 25, including three five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Islanders 13. Like, all of these puck possession numbers were tilted very much in favor of the Islanders in that third period. Nelson's goal came on, yes, a high-danger shot, a low-slot shot of the Caps failing to clear the puck from their defensive zone. So it just, it was not good enough. And it's a shame because the Caps did a lot of things well on Tuesday night. It's not like the Caps uh, were no-shows. It's not like the Caps were just horrible throughout the 60 minutes. Like, no, the first two periods, there was a lot to like. But in that third period, which counts, right? It's 20-minute periods in hockey. Uh, the Caps were outplayed big time by the Islanders. Now, the biggest bright spot of the game for the Caps was Vitek Vanacek. Uh, he was outstanding. He was a cap starting goaltender for the sixth time in 14 games, and Vitek was excellent. This may have been Vitek's best game of the season. I know the Caps lost, but this was a tremendous performance. Vitek Vanacek stopped 38 of the 39 shots on goal that he faced. He, per natural stat trick, faced an absurd 20 high danger shots on goal. That's ridiculous. Like, plenty of games a goaltender will face, like, you know, three, four, five high danger shots on goal if, it, if a team's really doing a good job defensively. VTech on Tuesday night faced 20 high danger shots on goal and he stopped 19 of them. I mean, it's hard to ask for more than that, stopping 19 of 20 high danger shots 
on goal. Now, there was some luck involved with Vanacek's performance because the Islanders on three different occasions had a shot hit a post, okay? So there was some puck luck on the side of Ovitek, but still, you stopped 38 of 39 shots, you stopped 19 of 20 high danger shots. It's hard to sit here and say the guy did anything but do a really good job. And it has been encouraging here with VTech. He's been good now over his last two games. His previous start prior to Tuesday night's came in that 2-1 overtime win for the Caps at the New Jersey Devils this past Friday night. VTech in that game stopped 22 of the 23 shots on goal that he faced, including all 10 of the shots on goal that he faced in the third period and overtime. So a good job by Vanacek on Tuesday night. Also a very good job by the Caps second defense pair, of Justin Schultz and Dmitry Orlov. Those two guys accounted for the Caps' second and third best five-on-five shot attempt percentages per natural stat trick. So basically, when those guys were on the ice five-on-five, the puck possession battle was won by the Caps. They did a really good job, uh, those two guys did, Schultz and Orlov. So I didn't want to credit them. The other notable item from this game on Tuesday night was that Jake the Snake was back playing. Jacob Vrana had been a healthy scratch for each of the Caps' two previous games, he was back in the lineup. He served as the third-line left winger. 13 minutes, 15 seconds of ice time. Uh, one shot on goal, two total shots, and per natural stat trick, a five-on-five shot attempt percentage of just 39.3. With Vrana on the ice in five-on-five situations, the Caps had 11 shot attempts for 17 shot attempts again. So I'm not sure that Peter Laviolette is going to be thrilled with that performance from Vrana, but you know, Vrana is a very skilled player. I, I, I do want him out there. Like I know Laviolette hasn't loved everything he's seen from Vrana lately. And Laviolette, I think very clearly wants to see more of some want to from Vrana, but Vrana is fast. Vrana is skilled. You know, I, I do feel like he's the kind of guy who probably needs some confidence. And if he gets going, that's a real boon to the cap. So um, hopefully he does get going here because he's better than what we've seen lately, no doubt. And uh, it's always telling when a guy as skilled as Vrana gets benched like he just got benched over these last few games here. So you look at where the Caps are at. This has become very much a dogfight for the East Division Championship. Caps, Islanders, Penguins to a lesser extent. You know, you can't discount the Boston Bruins either. Boston is just eight points behind the Caps and Islanders. Uh, Caps and Isles each with 54 points. The Bruins have 46 points. And next up for the Caps is a game against Boston at Capital One Arena. That'll come Thursday night at 7 o'clock. After that, the Caps are at the Buffalo Sabres Friday night at 7 and then at the Bruins Sunday night at 7. All right, my chat with former Washington quarterback and Ryan Fitzpatrick mentor Gus Farratt is coming up momentarily, but I'd like to deal right now with something that came up on Tuesday regarding the NFL draft. And as we like to do with everything on the Al Galdi podcast, we frame it in a way applicable to one of our teams, in this case, the Washington football team. So the Atlanta Falcons have the number four overall pick in the upcoming 2021 NFL draft. San Francisco acquiring that number three overall pick from Miami and the Jets trading Sam Darnold to Carolina seemingly has cemented at least the top three picks in this 2021 draft being quarterbacks, right? Jacksonville is going to take Trevor Lawrence at one. The Jets now, we're almost certain, will be taking Zach Wilson at two because Sam Darnold has gone bye-bye. And the Niners, it looks like, are going to take Mac Jones at number three. This certainly caught my attention on Tuesday morning. ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter on Tuesday morning on ESPN radio said that he would be shocked 
if the Niners did not take Mac Jones with that number three overall pick. When the news broke on March 26 of San Francisco acquiring that Dolphins number three overall pick, we all knew it was for a quarterback. What we didn't know was, well, which quarterback? Was it Jones? Was it Justin Fields? Was it Trey Lance? Was it maybe possibly somebody else? Well, more and more you read and hear that Jones is, in fact, the target. And just as an aside, I find that to be fascinating that Kyle Shanahan has just traded away a truckload of draft choices to take Mac Jones. Because you know you're not getting Lawrence, and you know with almost certainty you're not getting Zach Wilson. And the way this has been framed is, well, San Francisco's fine with any of three quarterbacks in this draft. Okay, but man, is that really interesting that the Niners, I mean, again, remember what they gave up to get that number three overall pick for Miami? 2021 first round pick, number 12 overall, 2022 first round pick, 2023 first round pick, and a 2022 compensatory third round pick. The Niners are going to end up spending on Mac Jones three first round picks and a compensatory third round pick. You better be certain that this guy is great for you, you know? I mean, like we talked about, it's not as much as what Washington gave up to trade up to take RG3 in 2012, but that is still a giant haul that Miami reeled in for San Francisco to take Mac Jones. Three ones and a compensatory third round pick. And, you know, with Mac Jones, like, he is definitely smart. He certainly is accurate. He absolutely had an outstanding career at Alabama. But Mac Jones is far from overwhelming in terms of physical gifts. And he's certainly not very mobile. Like, the Niners have given up a ton to take a guy who's smart and accurate and has achieved a lot in his collegiate career, you know? But it's not some athletic freak. It's not some guy with a cannon arm. It's not some guy who is doing things that you look at and you say, oh my God, we've never seen anything like this before. I, I, I just, I, I think this is going to be such an interesting case study of if the Niners are right about this, that they gave up all they gave up to take Mac Jones. I just think that that would be such a pushback against so much of what we think to be true right now in the NFL, that you really do want a mobile quarterback. You do want, ideally, an athletic freak. Mac Jones is neither. And yet if Kyle can make this work, boy, does he look smarter than everybody else. And we know Kyle likes that, right? We know the Shanahan's like that. And in part, they often are smarter than everybody else. Like they know what they're doing when it comes to offensive football. But, you know, we know the Shanahan's like guys who are smart, who process things quickly and accurately and who are accurate. And so with Mac Jones, I mean, you do seem to be getting that. He is, though, that classic, you know, high floor, low ceiling quarterback prospect. And I I just feel like if you're going to trade a ton to take a guy, you feel like that guy's got to bring to the table something different, something unique, something special. There's nothing physically special about Mac Jones. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't be a great quarterback, but it really is interesting to me what the Niners are doing here, assuming that Schefter's right and that Mac Jones is the play for San Francisco at number three overall. But anyway, Lawrence one, Wilson two, Jones three, we think will be the case come the first round of the NFL draft on April 29th. Also from Schefter on Tuesday, this was later on Tuesday morning, was the following tweet. Quote, with teams locked into the first three overall picks, end quote, the Atlanta Falcons have received trade calls from multiple teams and are open to moving out of the number four spot per a source. Now, Schefter saying this is per a source, uh, you can bet your bottom dollar 
that source is connected to the Atlanta Falcons. If you are the Falcons, you want this out there. There may be nobody better to put this out there than Schefter. He tweets it. It gets retweeted thousands of times. It gets liked thousands of times. People like me talk about it. The echo chamber starts reverberating all over the place. And all of a sudden, you got yourself a spicy meatball that is trade talks regarding your number four overall pick. So no doubt Atlanta planted this with Schefter. But of course, the Falcons would plant this because the Falcons are serious about this. They are interested in moving out of the number four spot. Doesn't mean they're definitely going to do so, but they at the very least want to know what other teams would be willing to give up for that number four overall pick in the upcoming NFL draft. And of course, the question this obviously raises for our purposes is, well, what about the Washington football team? Number 19 overall pick. There has been the discussion of, hey, Washington making a giant Niners-like trade-up in this draft. What is set to be, what certainly seems to be a quarterback-rich draft. Why not Washington? You know, even with the team having signed Ryan Fitzpatrick and having re-signed Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen, you still maybe slash probably don't have your long-term franchise quarterback on the roster especially if you really like one of these guys, if you like, say, someone beyond Lawrence, Wilson, and Jones enough to where you really feel like that guy could be the guy, why not trade up from 19 to 4? What would it cost to trade up from 19 to 4? So here's where I stand on this, okay? I am fine with Washington drafting a quarterback at any point in the upcoming draft if Washington really does like the quarterback. I mean, to me, here is how you always do the draft. You do go best player available, okay? You follow your board and you trust those putting together your board. So this is where this new look Washington football team front office has really got to make its case for being good, right? You've got to do the draft well. Kyle Smith set up the draft boards for the last four Washington football team drafts. And those last four drafts have overall been good. Not perfect, okay? There are definite nits to pick. But as I have said, you have to go back to the days of Bobby Bethard, for the last time Washington had a four-draft stretch, the likes of which Washington had 2017 through 2020. And those four drafts were governed, not necessarily led by, because we all know what happened with that first-round pick in 2019 with Dan Snyder, but those last four Washington football team drafts have been governed by draft boards put together by Kyle Smith. So this is another one of these long-term storylines to follow. Ron Rivera did not want to be in business with Kyle Smith anymore. Kyle Smith has been one of the victims of the Ron father, of the, of the Ron father, of the Ron Rivera godfather, like baptism of fire. Okay. So we'll see if Ron's proven right on that. But this new brain trust of Ron Rivera, Marty Herney, Martin Mayhew, Chris Polian, Eric Stokes, they've got to have themselves a very good upcoming draft. Every year, of course, you want to have a very good draft. And to me, the way you have good drafts is by following your boards, going best player available. You know, this thing that I've heard of, of like, well, Washington can address linebacker in the first round, or Washington should address linebacker in the first round. Washington should take the best player available wherever Washington picks first, okay? That's what Washington should do. You should not be in the business of, well, we have definite needs at linebacker, so we have to take a linebacker in the first round. You don't do that. That's how you get in trouble, okay? You don't let your needs dictate your drafts. You let your boards dictate your drafts. You go best player available. Now, that's not to say that need is never a factor, okay? But by and large, you let the board guide what you do. If the board suggests this quarterback in this spot makes sense, this quarterback in this this spot is the way to go, then do it, okay? Then do it. 
Because, yeah, while I like a lot about Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, and Kyle Allen, I'm not sold on any of them long-term. I don't think anyone is sold on any of them long-term. So if you really like one of these guys available to you in this draft, then take them, even if that guy is a quarterback. Now, when it comes to trading up, moving from 19 to 4, which would be such a leap, right? 15 spots. Uh, I don't want anything to do with ever doing something like that for a non-quarterback, okay? So any notion of move up from 19 to 4 because you can get Kyle Pitts there. Like, no. And I know that Kyle Pitts is a stud. And I know he projects to be an outstanding tight end. But I don't care how much of a freak Kyle Pitts is. He's a tight end. A tight end is only going to do so much for you. And as we saw this past season with Washington, you can actually find really good tight end production on the Uber cheap. Washington signed Logan Thomas last offseason to a two-year contract for about $6 million. And Logan Thomas in 2020 had a season comparable to peak Jordan Reed, peak Chris Cooley. Like, that's the kind of production you got from Logan Thomas this past season. Would Kyle Pitts help out the Washington offense big time? Absolutely. But he's still a tight end. There's no position other than quarterback that's truly worth a giant leap forward in an NFL draft. There just isn't. And that's not to say that other positions don't matter. They all matter. But nothing matters like quarterback. So no way am I even entertaining the idea of going from 19 to 4 for a non-quarterback. So that brings us to Justin Fields and Trey Lance. Numbers 4 and 5, it would seem, when it comes to the top 5 quarterbacks in this quarterback-rich draft. Would either Justin Fields or Trey Lance be worthy of a massive trade-up from 19 to 4? Whatever that cost would be, and we know it would be huge, definitely three ones and a whole lot more. You know, you're probably talking about a two, maybe multiple twos, a three, maybe multiple threes, maybe a significant player or players. I mean, that's not a leap you see often. 15 spots in a first round. Washington gave up three ones into two to go from six to two in the 2012 draft. San Francisco just gave up three ones into compensatory three to go from 12 to three in this 2021 draft. Like, what would it cost to go from 19 to four? I can only imagine what that would be. So is either guy worth it, Fields or Lance? Each guy is intriguing. Each guy is talented. But no thank you. Am I doing what it would take to go from 19 to four to get either guy? So you start with Justin Fields, the Ohio State quarterback. There's a lot to like about Justin Fields. First of all, the guy is a physical freak, okay? What Mac Jones is not, Justin Fields is a physical freak. At the Ohio State Pro Day on March 30th, Justin Fields measures being 6'2 and 6'8, 227 pounds, and he ran a 4440. The only other quarterback to run a faster 40 at an NFL scouting combine was Robert Griffin III. He ran a 44140 in 2012. Now, these pro day 40 times can be a little sketchy, so they don't really count the way that scouting combine 40s count to whatever extent those things do count. But 44440 for Fields at the Ohio State Pro Day, if that was in fact legit, that's the second fastest 40 time in the combine era. RG3 again 44140 in 2012, the second fastest quarterback 40 time at a combine, Marcus Mariota's 4-5-2-40 in 2015. So you are getting a physical freak in Justin Fields. He obviously is accomplished. You know, this was not a Dwayne Haskins situation where it was just one season. No, Justin Fields did what he did at Ohio State over two years, 2019 
and 2020. 22 games for the Buckeyes, 63 touchdown passes versus nine interceptions, an average of 10.8 yards per pass attempt. Fields at Ohio State, extremely accurate. Fields in the 2020 season for Pro Football Focus, number two among qualified quarterbacks in the FBS with just 12% of his passes being deemed uncatchably off target. He did this while also in the 2020 season for PFF, posting an elite grade of 96.5 on balls thrown 20 or more yards downfield. So he rarely threw uncatchable balls And it's not like he didn't throw the deep ball well. He threw the deep ball quite well. And how about this with Fields? Over his two seasons as the Buckeyes QB1, 2019 and 2020 for PFF, a mere 17 turnover-worthy plays over 684 dropbacks. That's one of my favorite things at PFF tracks, turnover-worthy plays. So if you throw a pass and it's an interception that's dropped by a defensive back, you still get charged with a turnover-worthy play because that's what that was. Like, It's the defensive back's fault for dropping the pass that you're not charged with an interception, but that still was an interception-worthy throw. So you get charged on a play like that with a turnover-worthy play. Fields, again, over his two years as Ohio State starting quarterback, just 17 turnover-worthy plays over 684 dropbacks. Fields, as you may recall, played out of his mind in the college football playoff semis this past season. The Ohio State 49-28 win over Clemson in the Sugar Bowl on New Year's Day night. 22 of 28 for 385 yards, six touchdowns, and one interception. He got sacked twice. The field's six touchdown passes tied for the second most in a bowl game in FBS history. And Fields did this despite dealing with sore ribs off a nasty hit that he took from the linebacker. James Skalski got ejected for targeting on a second quarter third down scramble. Fields was outstanding in that game against Clemson. Perfect throw on a second and 10, 12-yard touchdown pass to the tight end Jeremy Ruckert with 11 seconds left in the second quarter. A terrific throw on a third quarter, second and 10, 56-yard touchdown bomb to the receiver Chris Olave. Fields was so good in that win over Clemson. However, that performance was sandwiched between two lackluster performances by Justin Fields late in Ohio State's 2020 season. Fields struggled in two of his final three games for the Buckeyes. Their 22-10 win over Northwestern in Indianapolis in the Big Ten Championship game on December 19th. Now, Fields in that game did deal with a thumb injury, but he went just 12 of 27 for just 114 yards, no touchdowns, and two interceptions, and got sacked three times. And then two games later, Ohio State's 52-24 loss to Alabama in the college football playoff national championship game at Hard Rock Stadium in Florida. Fields in that game, just 17 of 33 for 194 yards, a touchdown, no interception, sacked once, did have six carries for 67 yards. So three big games to conclude Ohio State's 2020 season. Fields had issues in two of the three games, but in the other game, he was outstanding. That aforementioned win over Clemson in the college football playoff semis. Uh, how about this regarding fields? Again, this is another one of these pro football focus stats. This is why I always look at PFF because it tracks things that really, I think, can illuminate what truly a player is. So Justin Fields had 423 career collegiate completions, okay? He played a season at Georgia 2018, played two seasons at Ohio State 2019 and 2020. Out of those 423 career collegiate completions, just 54 of them were tight window completions for pro football focus. That's one of the things that PFF tracks 
your tight window completions. I think that's a big deal, right? Because so much of the NFL is about the tight window throw. Guys aren't running screaming wide open, as is so often the case in college football, especially at big time programs like Ohio State, where you just like out talent so many different people. 54 tight window completions for Fields in his collegiate career. That's significant. Like he's not used to having to force balls into tight windows, complete passes into tight windows. That's something you have to do in the NFL. And it doesn't mean that Fields can't do that, but it does mean that he doesn't have a lot of experience doing that. Also, there's this. ESPN NFL draft analyst Todd McShay in an ESPN Sports Center special on the upcoming draft uh, last Thursday night, April 1st, said this, and I thought this was really interesting, that he was told by an NFL team that had studied Fields that just seven of Fields' 225 pass attempts in the 2020 season were to a target other than the number one pass catcher on the play. How about that? He wasn't having to go through his progressions all that often, or at the very least, he wasn't having to throw to anyone other than the primary on plays for Ohio State in the 2020 season. Seven of his 225 pass attempts, that's it. Just seven went to a target other than the number one target on the play. Again, Ohio State is out talenting people on a week-to-week basis. You're not having to do the things you're going to have to do in the NFL, right? So much of the NFL is about the tight window throw, about going through your progressions. You know, your primary is covered, so you move to your secondary, you move to your tertiary, and Fields wasn't having to do that a lot at the collegiate level. Again, it doesn't mean that he can't do that, but it does mean that he hasn't had to do a lot of that. And then there's this, and this is a tricky one, I'll grant you that, but the whole Dan Orlovsky scenario, ESPN NFL analyst Dan Orlovsky on the Pat McAfee show on March 31st, saying about Fields slipping in some of the mock drafts, quote, I have heard that he is a last guy in, first guy out type of quarterback. Like, not the maniacal work ethic. Where is his desire to be a great quarterback? End quote. And as you almost certainly know, Orlovsky took a lot of heat for those comments for a lot of different reasons. But he has essentially stood by the comments. Now, he spoke to NFL insider Peter King of NBC Sports, for Peter's Football Morning in America column that came out early this past Monday morning. Um, and, he, you know, he, he sort of, Orlovsky basically said, like, he wished that he had provided more clarity and specificity for the comments. But he did say, Orlovsky did to Peter, that people from a couple of teams have questioned Fields' work ethic. So, you know, put aside how you feel about Orlovsky saying what he said, saying how he said what he said, but that is a thing that's out there that maybe this guy isn't all in on being a quarterback. Now, again, it's a maybe. It's something that some people are saying. Does it mean that it's true? No, it does not. And if it's not true, that's really bad that people are pumping that into the bloodstream here. But we all learned this lesson with Dwayne Haskins with the Washington football team. Work ethic matters. Preparation matters. Diligence matters. And if you don't have those things, that's a real problem. Unless you are so great that you don't need to have those things, but very few are that good to where they cannot put in the work, not put in the time, and still end up killing it Sunday in 
and Sunday out. The last thing Washington would need would be to trade away three first round picks and a bunch of other assets for a guy who's 50-50 perhaps to begin with about whether he can play at the NFL level and then isn't even putting in the time to be great at the NFL level. Again, we just went through this with Wayne Wayne. So yeah, there's a lot to like with Justin Fields. But I'm not giving up what it's going to take to go from 19 to 4 to take Justin Fields. Heck no. And with Trey Lance, same thing. I like a lot about Trey Lance. The guy is big. 6'4", 226 was what he's been listed as. The guy can run. The guy put up some monster numbers at North Dakota State. But the guy also played essentially one season at North Dakota State. He was there three years. 2018 was a redshirt year. 2020, he played in just one game. And that was the only game that North Dakota State played in the fall of 2020 until the season was restarted in February. And Lance was very mixed in that lone game that North Dakota State played in the fall of 2020. It was a win, a 39-28 win over Central Arkansas. But Trey Lance in that game, just 15-30 for just 149 yards, two touchdowns and an interception, took two sacks, did have 15 carries for 143 yards and two touchdowns. But the lone true season that Trey Lance played at North Dakota State was his 2019 redshirt freshman season, and he was sensational that year. Started all 16 games for North Dakota State, which won the FCS National Championship. In fact, became the first 16-0 and team in college football since 1894. Lance won the Walter Payton Award as the top offensive player in the FCS, won the Jerry Rice Award as the top freshman player in the FCS, had 28 touchdown passes versus zero interceptions, averaged 9.7 yards per pass attempt, totaled 1,100 rushing yards and 14 rushing touchdowns, and averaged 6.5 yards per carry. The guy was awesome, but that was just the one season of awesomeness. Beyond that, there's not a lot to sink your teeth into. I am enticed by Trey Lance. If Trey Lance fell to Washington at 19, or even fell to like 14, 15, 16, and Washington made a reasonable trade up to Trey Lance, I would actually be on board with that. But heck no, I'm not giving up what it would take to go from 19 to 4 to take Trey Lance. Just like I'm not giving up what it would take to move up from 19 to 4 to take Justin Fields. This is not the year for the Washington football team to make the giant leap forward in the first round of the NFL draft. It's just not feasible. It's not prudent. It's not what I think is the best usage of your assets. And so I would take a hard pass on falling for the bait. That is the Atlanta Falcons now dangling this number four overall pick and saying, come here, come here, big boy. And let me see what I can do for you. Like, no, resist the temptation when it comes to this. And there's a final point here, and it's something that I've been harping on the last few weeks, but it really is undeniable. And that is how so many of these giant trade-ups in the first rounds of NFL drafts to take quarterbacks aren't working out. Now, trade-ups within reason do work out, okay? Like the trade-up the Buffalo Bills made to take Josh Allen, that's working. The trade-up that the Kansas City Chiefs made to take Patrick Mahomes, that's clearly working. But the giant trade-ups, you know, what the Rams did to take Jared Goff with the first overall pick in 2016, what the Eagles did to take Carson Wentz with the second overall pick in 2016, what the Chicago Bears did to take Mitchell Trubisky with the number two overall pick in 2017, what the Jets did to take Sam Darnold with the number three overall pick in 2018. It's been one screw-up after another in recent years in terms of teams trading into top threes of NFL drafts to take quarterbacks. This would be trading into the top four, not the top three, 
But there is uncertainty, period, with taking quarterbacks in first rounds. You're really starting to swim in the waters of uncertainty when you start picking the number four quarterback in this draft. Or, you know, maybe even the number three quarterback. Like, maybe to you, it's Lawrence one, Wilson two, and then Lance three. Or Justin Fields three. And that's fine. I think that's a reasonable way of looking at things. But even then, you have to say to yourself, are you that sure about this guy to where giving up the three ones and whatever else it's going to take to go from 19 to four is worth it? I just don't see it that way. Look, does Washington have its long-term franchise quarterback on the roster? Probably not. Although I remain open-minded on Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. And if you happen to like someone beyond the big five quarterbacks in this 2021 draft, someone beyond Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Mac Jones, Justin Fields, and Trey Lance, maybe a Kyle Trask, maybe a Kellen Mond, maybe a Jamie Newman, and you take that someone at 19 or that someone, say, in the second round or maybe even someone in the third round, then have at it. I think that that is a very reasonable, logical, and doable way of attacking the quarterback position in regards to the draft. But this stuff with the Falcons that was out there on Tuesday, uh, no thank you. No thank you. The Washington football team should pass and I believe will pass. All right, so if you've been paying attention to what the Washington football team's newest quarterback, Ryan Fitzpatrick, has been saying in various interviews that he's been doing, you may have heard him credit a certain former Washington quarterback, Gus Farratt. This isn't new. Gus Farratt has been known for years as having served as a mentor of sorts for Fitzpatrick. The two were together with the St. Louis Rams in 2006. And so I thought it'd be a good idea to get Gus. And he joins me now, former Washington quarterback Gus Verratt, the host of his own podcast, Huddle Up with Gus. Gus, it's great to have you on my podcast, man. How you doing? Yeah, great, Al. How you doing? Doing well, doing well. It's great to have you on. Got a lot I want to get into with you. I I will not be asking you about the banging of the head against the wall in 97. I feel like you've been asked about that a million times, so I'm hoping that's okay with you. Yeah, that's old news now. It is. It is. It absolutely is. So so it's been really cool to hear Ryan Fitzpatrick and the way he's talked about you and his relationship with you. If you don't mind, like, what is your relationship with Ryan and what is Washington getting in Ryan Fitzpatrick? Ryan, I go way back. Um, he was, a you know, a young, hairless kid when I met him. <laughs> <laughs> Not like he is now. But, uh you know, Ryan was great. I was older. I loved to play pranks on people. Ryan was, the, he had a great personality. He could take anything I dished out and just, we were very similar in a lot of ways. We didn't know it at the time, uh, like that our careers would end up very similar and he would surpass me in the amount of teams he's played for. But, uh, you know, we just, we both just were very similar. We loved the game of football. We loved our families. Um, uh, you know, that was our thing. Like we, we did football and went home and hung with our kids. And that's kind of what we did. So you mentioned the parallels between your careers. It really is interesting, right? You both were seventh round picks. You both have had NFL careers that were never supposed to be as lengthy as they ended up being. You both have played for a bunch of different teams. You're both known as great teammates. What do you make of those similarities? I mean, it must feel like you're looking in a mirror when you look at what Fitzpatrick has gone through in his career. Well, it's kind of funny. Like I'd send him pictures of me trying to grow a beard and, and I just have no, I cannot do it. It's just gray now. And I'm like, I am not growing a beard. You can see it's a little gray. But <laughs> mine is, um, yeah, we've been similar. You know, we've been, you know, they label us as journeymen and, and, uh, we've gone from team to team. I like to think that we're really smart and we can adapt to any situation and, and play under any coach and any, 
any offensive coordinator because that's the hardest part of going team to team is, is trying to learn, learn a new system. Uh, you've seen them all, you've been through them all, but it's always different. And then when you go to a new team, uh, you have to get to know the offense very quick. You have to get to know the guys very quick. So Ryan coming into Washington is not going to be easy. He has to get to know the receivers, Terry McLaurin. He has to get to know the running backs, the coach, you know, how, um, how Turner likes to call plays and all that stuff and, and do it in five months. No doubt. Now, obviously, like you said, you have to be smart to do as you guys have done, going from team to team, learning different offenses. What are some of the keys to that, adapting quickly to new locker rooms, adapting quickly to new offensive schemes? Um, it's being open-minded. You know, uh, I think a lot of times when you're young, you're very impressionable, so you remember a lot of the stuff that you learned early on. Uh, like uh, when I was in Washington, Cam Cameron and Norv Turner, a lot of those things that I learned from from them, I carried with me throughout my career. So when I went from Norv's digit system to Mike Shanahan's West Coast offense, it was a big change. And you have to learn how to um, – you have to learn the offense. You have to study a lot. You have to understand all those things. And then um, put it in context with how you learn defense, how you, how you learn how to read a defense. And, and obviously what you can throw against, uh, you know, a cover two in a West Coast is not the same that you can throw in a digit system. So it would seem a real key to playing quarterback is your mental processing, that you are able to process that which is in front of you quickly, that you're able to process, you know, these new offenses every year, every two years, et cetera. That that certainly seems to be a strength of Fitzpatrick. Was that a strength of yours as well? Yeah, you have to be able to process that information that you get and you have to learn it, process it quickly. And then the other thing is you can't be afraid to go out and not make the throws. Right. Because sometimes, uh, you know, when you're guessing or you don't understand things, it becomes way harder. And I've seen a lot of quarterbacks go through that. So you have to study. You have to understand what you're doing. Um, and nothing's going to be perfect. Right. Uh, it's never going to be seven on seven on game day. And so I think what Ryan does uh, an amazing job at is that he goes out and he plays and he says, OK, I'm going to make this throw. That's where I got to go with the ball. There's a window. I'm going to fit it in. My guy's going to make a play for me. And you see him a lot of times. Uh, sometimes it causes mistakes, but a lot of times it's fearless. He's given his guys opportunities. And that's all you can ask out of a quarterback is you got, you know, you got to give your players opportunities to go out and make plays for you. Yeah. And that's been a thing with Fitzpatrick. He throws the ball downfield. He plays aggressively. He makes big plays. There's no question about that. As a quarterback, especially, you know, in a situation like that where like, you're never necessarily christened as like the chosen one. You always got to earn your next opportunity. Do you kind of view picks as, hey, like you don't want to throw them, but they are kind of a necessary evil and you're going to throw them if you're going to take chances and try to make plays? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know many quarterbacks that's never thrown a pick. So like you got to go out and make the, you got to take those chances. Like for me, dink and dunk is never a good thing. Like, I mean, I just living here in Pittsburgh this year and listen to the Steelers and what they went through saying that, Hey, a three yard pass is like a run. Like, no, it's not. Right? Your <laughs> linemen aren't, aren't coming off the ball. They're not smashing people in the face. It's, it's a totally different game. And, and, uh, for me personally, I love the run game mixed with play action. And, and if we're going to throw the ball, let's go get big plays, first downs. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's a lot of the game. And, and uh, yeah, obviously if things aren't open, you check it down to, uh, you always have good players uh, coming out of the backfield. But, uh, I think what Ryan does is he takes those chances and we understand that it's not always going to be 
perfect out there. But when you can throw the ball downfield, you give your team a really good chance to win. I would think having the career that Ryan has had, having the career that you had, that it's empowering. That, you know, you, you come into the league as a seventh round pick. You're not supposed to last. You're certainly not supposed to last long. And yet you defy those odds and you keep finding employment. Teams keep wanting you as a part of their rosters. Am I right in saying that, that there is an aspect of, you know, hey, I wasn't supposed to be here. I am here and I'm doing something that people never really thought that I would do. Yeah, I mean, there's a big part of that. Obviously, Ryan and I would both have loved to stay in one spot uh, and, you know, raise your family, not move around a million times. But, uh, you know, you know that you're playing in the NFL and you're super happy. You're super lucky that you get to do it. Ryan, you know, Ryan's obviously happy that he gets to play another year. Uh, you know, after 15 years, I tried to play again with the Rams. I fun to physical and that didn't happen. And then, then you're going, gee, what am I going to do next? You know, so, um, you want to keep that part A of your life going as long as possible. And, and Ryan's been really good at it. He stayed pretty much injury free. And I think that the, the, the Washington football team's getting a really good guy. And hopefully they take advantage of it, get a young kid that can learn from him. Not that coaches don't coach and do things the right way, but something about learning from a veteran as a young player on all the things to do, not just on the field during a game, but, you know, in the locker room, in the huddle, uh, what to do off the field, all these things, these little nuances that I think a lot of young guys don't get to see if there's no veterans around. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because we went through that here last season with Dwayne Haskins, and it's what ultimately cost him his job as much as his performance. And now, you know, interestingly, the Steelers, where you're at in Pittsburgh, have Dwayne Haskins on one of those reserve slash future contracts. But th- that is an interesting phenomenon, how not everyone gets it, how there is something to being, if not mentored by someone, certainly like having, you know, a model that you can follow in terms of how to behave did you have someone like that for you in your career, or did you have to figure it out as you went along? Yeah, when I was young, I had a guy that was in Washington with me, John Freeze. And John was a lot like me. You know, I saw myself in him. You know, we weren't running around out there like Michael Vick could or, you know, um, um, what's the name from Baltimore. You know, John and I were in the pocket, guys, throw the ball downfield. And I learned touch. I learned so many things from John. He was a great guy, uh, was uh, able to have a conversation with guys in a locker room, laugh with everyone. And as the quarterback and the leader of the team, you have to be able to get along with everyone. And you have to earn that trust from everyone. And, and sometimes laughter is the best medicine for all of that. The whole cliche of first one in, last one out, is that legit? Like, do you really have to show up super early every day and leave super late, or does that get overstated? No, I, I don't think it's overstated. I think there's an element to that, and I think that when you – like, for me, I was having young kids, so I was up early. So I my thing was I love to be in early, go in and get ready for the day, uh, go go get in the sauna, the hot tub, whatever, get, get going in the mornings. And then, uh, you know, just get, stay there through the day and, and, and get much, as much work done as possible. I don't think you need to stay in there till, you know, nine o'clock at night. Well, especially now with technology. I mean, when I first started, you know, it was hard to take a VHS tape home and throw it in and watch it with your kids. Now, <laughs> yeah. you know, they give everything to you on some, uh, you know, an iPad or a Microsoft tablet or something and, 
and it, and all the film is cut off, put in the cloud. You can bring it down. You can watch, you know, you can take 10 minutes and watch third downs and learn what that defense is, right? So they cut it up so well for you now that you can really preserve your time in a way and study it that uh, is very efficient. No doubt. And when you can do that, it saves you a lot of time. No Back doubt. in the day, yeah, I think you had to stay longer just because it took longer to watch film. Sometimes they, you know, you you put a VHS tape in and they'd say, okay, we got to have the game on here and you'd have to watch the whole game, which is different and not how you, you know, it's more compartmentalized now. So, you know, in third down when it's third and short, here's, here's what defense are going to play. And you, you can remember that really quick. Talking with former Washington quarterback and Ryan Fitzpatrick mentor, Gus Farratt. So you played well into your 30s. Fitzpatrick obviously is playing deep into his 30s. You could argue Ryan has had his best two or three seasons over the last two or three years. Like statistically speaking, he's really played at a high level. We're seeing quarterbacks now play well deep into their 30s, if not into their 40s. What do you make of that? Just the idea that like quarterbacks are totally changing the way we view the aging curve in the NFL. And could you see Ryan being Washington starter for, say, multiple seasons? He only signed a one-year contract, but could he maybe be here for longer than that? Yeah, I think so. I think he stay relatively injury-free. I think a lot of times when you get older, you get some nicks and bruises. And, they, you know, as you get older, those things don't go away like they used to when you're 20, 24 years old. You know what I mean? You get some injuries that kind of are lagging. And, and you know, I mean, a good example is Alex Smith last year, right? Uh, you know, he came back, but he just didn't, couldn't overcome that terrific, that horrific injury he had. And sometimes those things, you know, it may be a shoulder, maybe a knee, and, and you don't get to be yourself out there. And so you do miss throws, you miss, but I haven't seen Ryan slow down like that. You know, if you look at Tom Brady in the same way, that they're still making the throws, they're still having fun, they're still, I mean, you watch Ryan play, he's still scrambling for 15 yards. He, yeah. he was Miami's leading rusher two years ago. <laughs> you know, that's crazy to think about that. You know, he was 35 and he's Miami's leading rusher. So, um, I, uh, you know, I think that Ryan's going to be a good fit. He's going to come out and play hard for Washington. He's going to play hard for Coach Rivera. Um, and I think that uh, the team's going to love him. With Fitzpatrick, you think he ends up being Washington's starting quarterback this coming season? I, I think so. I think that, you know, depending on who they bring in, I would love for him to be the starter and, and then have somebody really come in and learn. You know, I think that um, that would be huge for Washington. Find somebody, do the scouting, find somebody that fits the personality of Ron Rivera and Scott Turner, and then uh, be able to keep them uh, for a long, long period of time, but don't rush it. I think that there's an opportunity right now for Washington to not to rush it because everybody wants to win and win right now. But I don't think you have to. I think it's more about building that team, putting those good components in place, and then you can have a, a good franchise for years to come. Yeah, and Ryan has certainly emphasized that. So your career with the Washington football team, it's so fascinating with Washington because the franchise doesn't just have this lengthy history of quarterback controversies, but a lengthy history of quarterback controversies that pit one guy who was supposed to be the guy versus another guy who was never supposed to be the guy. You know, we had that a few years ago here, RG3 versus Kirk Cousins. We had that to an extent last season, Dwayne Haskins versus Kyle Allen. And we definitely had that with Heath Shuler versus you. What was that like in 1994? The two rookies, Heath is supposed to be the guy. You're a seventh round pick. 
and you end up starting four games in that 94 rookie season and then end up being Washington's primary quarterback for each of the next three years. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's crazy uh, because you just – I was there to make the team, right? I just had to make the team. I'm I'm battling for the third-string spot because uh, you know he's going to make the team. John Freeze is going to make the team. And so you're just out there, and any opportunities I had, I had to go and take advantage of. So Keith doesn't show up for uh, training camp because of a holdout, and I get every rep that he's supposed to take. So those are my opportunities that I had to take advantage of to prove to the team that I could go out and play and make throws. And then through the year, injuries happen. I get a chance to start. was able to go out and make some plays, and uh, the rest is kind of history. But – when you when you have those situations, uh, you know it, it's crazy that uh, a seventh rounder because you're labeled that, right? You're not labeled a, uh, a quarterback in the NFL. You're labeled a seventh rounder, a guy who nobody else wanted, and then fell to the seventh round. And you have to go out and prove yourself every day, all the time. Where a first rounder is, no matter where he goes, he's a first rounder, and if he makes mistakes or whatever. Oh, he's a first rounder, but he has an extreme amount of talent. Whereas if you make the NFL, I feel like if you can play, you can play. Like the talent is there. Uh, and I look at it the same way this year in the draft upcoming. You know, they're, they're gonna, obviously the kid from Clemson is gonna be probably the, taking the first pick by the Jaguars. And then after that, it's anybody's guess who's next. Did you have an, hey, I can do this game or moment? Like, like, was there something that took place where it kind of hit you? You know what? I can do this. I can be a starting NFL quarterback. I'll tell you what, when I was a, a rookie, I was, you know, you run the scout team stuff and, uh, you're, you're thrown against the first team defense and the coaches bring these cards out and they put the play on and they circle where they want you to throw the ball. And you're a rookie. You're saying, okay, I'm going to listen to the defense coordinator because that's where they want the ball to go. And so we're doing that. Maybe it's like the second or third week and Daryl Green comes up to me and he says, Gus, what are you doing? I said, um, not much. What are you doing, Daryl? And he goes, no, what are you doing out there? And I, I said, well, I'm just doing what they told me to do. And he goes, is that making you any better? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, look, you're doing what they tell you and you're throwing to the circle guy. He goes, is that where you would throw it? I said, no, hardly any of them would ever be where I would throw the football. And he goes, so do that now in practice. I said, yeah, but I'm gonna, they're gonna get pissed and I'm gonna get cut. And he goes, no, they're not. He said, you're not making me any better. If it's one on one and that ball's supposed to come towards me, but you're throwing it somewhere else, you're not making me or my teammates any better by doing that. So he said, take advantage of it. Every time you go out there, beat the defense. I don't care if it's our defense, if it's in a game, whatever it is and beat them and throw it where you're supposed to throw it, not where they want you to throw it. And so from that point on, I started doing that in practice and just, you know, having really good success against our own defense and having making our receivers, you know, doing all that stuff. And that's because Daryl Green took the time to see something in a rookie and come up to me and say, hey, you know, you got an opportunity to be good, and but you're not showing it. You have to show it every opportunity you get. And so – I took that to heart and I did that my whole career. Anytime, even when I was in my 14th year and I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm playing in St. Louis and I'm running a scout team, I took pride in throwing as many touchdowns as I could in practice as anybody, you know, because that's the only way you're able to go out in a game 
and play. Like they want these quarterbacks to go out and run a def- an offense of the other team, but not do what you're supposed to do. Then you go into a game and you're like, oh, wait, where's the circles? Nobody's telling me what to throw it, right? <laughs> yeah. So then all of a sudden you got to go out and throw it where you're supposed to. And now all of a sudden, I, I didn't have any practice doing that. So I took that to heart from Daryl. He always backed me up and he was a great mentor. And, and, and uh, I really appreciated that my whole career. Why didn't it work out for Heath? I, I used to work with Brian Mitchell, and he told the story of how he, B. Mitch, would have to call the plays in the huddle at times because Heath didn't know them well enough. What what went on with that to where it just never worked out for him? I don't know. You know, I can't really speak for Heath. Uh, you know, he he was, he was a good guy. I think that there was a lot of pressure put on him. Obviously, when you're the number one pick, you, you, you've got to come through, right? You're, you're the – all the eggs are in your basket. And there was a holdout. And then, you know, that wasn't like his fit. That North Turner system wasn't a great fit for him. That wasn't what he liked. Uh, you know, because when he was on my podcast, we talked about that. It was the first time he and I ever really sat down and talked about everything we went through when he came on my show, which was awesome. And he said, you know, Gus, the digit system wasn't, I wasn't a fan of. I didn't like it. I didn't feel comfortable ever in it. And then when he went and played in the West Coast system, he felt like he was home. And so that was a big thing for him. Like, he didn't understand it. He didn't catch it. And so I think what happened was it sped the game up for him to where, you know, Norbert called the play, and it wasn't as easy for him. He was trying to remember things, and then maybe it didn't come out right in the huddle. Um, and then he's still a kid, right? We think he's just because he's a number one pick. He's some mature person who, who can just – say the stuff off the top of the head like he's been doing it for 20 years. No, he's still a kid, and he's got to learn. But uh, you get some undue pressure put on you as a first-rounder. And so I think that that came on him. That was pretty hard for him. And, uh, you know, he and I talked, and when we said, you know, I, I don't think there's any hard feelings between us. And I think it was just something that it was hard for both of us. You mentioned North Turner. Uh, Washington now, of course, has Scott Turner, North's son, as offensive coordinator. What did you think of Norv as a head coach? Did you like playing for him? I thought, and to be brutally honest, I thought Norv was a great play caller. I thought that we always were in a good position to have the right kind of play on, to know when the defense was blitzing. I thought he did a good job of game planning and understanding what we were going to see every week. Like, put the offense in really good positions. As far as leading the team, um, and, you know, and I've said this before, I don't think that that's, that was Norv's strongest suit. That's probably why he didn't last as a head coach. Because I thought there were times and situations that I went through where I needed his leadership and it was very lacking. Um, I'll give you one example. When I was in the huddle, um, you know, he comes up to me. This is when I was starting and he says, Hey, this is your team now. You gotta, you gotta take over. I'm like, okay. So I'm in the huddle and practice. Guys are complaining, talking. They're not listening to me, and I, I kick the guy out of the huddle. And he comes out. He goes, oh, no, no, put him back in there. I, we need him on this play. And, like, instead of backing me up and supporting me, yeah. he just said, oh, no, this is not your team, basically. And I was like, what the, what is that? You just tell me one thing, and then you do a complete other thing. So for me, that leadership was not there. I've, I've played for a lot of head coaches. Um and, you know, and I don't think it's anything that Norv's a bad person or anything like that. It's just that, um, you know, we all have faults and we all lack something. And I think that was hard for Norv. 
Yeah, what you just said about Norv, uh, many guys have said over the years. So, I mean, that, that makes total sense. You also, of course, played for Mike Shanahan with Denver, 2000-2001. We had Mike here for four seasons as head coach. How would you like playing for Shanahan? Mike was very, like, uh, this is my offense, but he wasn't – he was involved somewhat. He was more like a businessman, like a business owner, like of the team, I felt like. Like, this is what we're doing, and then he's letting everybody run it. Um, and I felt like um, – because I had, I missed that big bonus by one play. And I went up to Mike and I said, Mike, you took me out of the game. I should have had this bonus. He goes, it's too bad you didn't make it. Like, didn't pay me. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you benched me. Like, you took me out in the fourth quarter. I could have just handed the ball off and made, you know, sorry, that's how it goes. And then I follow arbitration with the, and they said, no, it's like, like you, you missed the play. It's not like a, something like that. And so Mike is a very good coach. Uh, I think he kind of runs the team like an own, like a business guy would, like the general manager would. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he's not not friendly, uh, but he is also can sit down and have a drink with you and BS with you a little bit. But uh, it's just just nuances of all these coaches that have been around and they all have different egos, they all have different mindsets, and you can either fall in line or you can just be yourself. And sometimes they don't like you to be yourself. You played in the NFL for 15 seasons, 94 through 08, Washington, Detroit, Denver, Cincinnati, Minnesota, Miami, St. Louis, and then Minnesota again. Which tenure do you look back upon most fondly? Did you have a favorite run with a certain team? I love them all. The least favorite would be the Bengals. Uh, that was a very hard year for me. But like when I left Washington and I went to Detroit, I felt like I could have played in Detroit forever. I loved the team. I loved the city. I loved everything about it, even though it was hard and, and, uh, you know, Barry Sanders didn't come back and, and we did all those things. But man, that team, that locker room was amazing. And, um, I felt like I should have been there longer, but they didn't see it that way. And then you have to move on. But all of them were great. Obviously, my time in Washington was unbelievable. I'm a rookie from a small school in the middle of the country in Oklahoma, coming from Tulsa. Uh, didn't have a lot of, you know, big-time experience. And you're drafted and you're put into the media in D.C. And, boy, you talk about learning by fire. It, ju- it just was, learn. you know, it's the whole thing we just talked about. First round, seventh round, you know, he's Schuler, Gus, it's like, I had to learn all that. I never had to deal with those things in a big way. All right. But I, I look back to my one time in high school. We're playing our rival the week before we won a game. And they said, Hey, you're playing Catanning next week. How do you think it's going to go? And I'm like, Oh, we just beat so and so. I don't think we'll have a problem with Catanning. Right. And I'm like in 10th grade or something. Right. So I learned really quick what you say goes right into the paper. Mm hmm. And so you have to really be careful about what you say and how you deal with the media. So I really remember that all the time from growing up. Like I learned a mistake early on. It was rough for a couple of weeks <laughs> growing up against my rival, especially when they beat me. So, uh, you know, it's just things that I took. But Washington was, was always near and dear to my wife and I's heart. Yeah, it really is amazing the importance of the quarterback position, the focus on the quarterback position. I mean, you, you know, you know it as well as anybody. It's, it's funny, you reference your time with the Lions. So you made the playoffs with Detroit in 99. You guys actually played at Washington in the wild card round for that 99-2000 postseason. What was it like starting against Washington in the postseason, your first season away from Washington? 
Yeah, so during the season, we played them in Detroit. We had a great game. We beat them. I uh, had a wonderful game against them. And then we go to Wash, we go to Washington in the playoffs. And I remember, like, it was tough because I'm going back there. There's all these headbutt things. People are very mean. Uh, you know, uh, just for instance, after we lost the game, I'm walking back to the tunnel and somebody threw a beer on me. Jeez. And so it's just, that's just kind of like, I was, I was upset at the time more about losing the game and not winning for the team than getting a beer thrown on me. But, um, when we go, we're playing the first drop back I have in the game. Uh, I remember I, I took a big hit and my pinky snapped sideways and, um, I go, what the heck happened? I'm like dazed and, and the fullback goes, Oh, that was my guy. I was supposed to block him and I went out on a pass and I'm like, Oh, it's going to be a long day. So, uh, you know, it wasn't our day in Washington, but, um, just going back and playing there again. Um, having to deal with everything that happened to me, uh, just kind of made me deal with the adversity even more and, um, just got me through it kind of. Final question for you. What do you make of playing quarterback in 2021? The NFL has obviously become such a passing league. The rules have been modified to where throwing the football has never made more sense. You know, you got defenses now that are in nickel like 70% of the time. You've got all kinds of passing records. It, it seems like being said every year. Um, I mean, the position, it's it's changed, but at the same time, it's like it's never been more valuable, and it just feels like if you don't have that quarterback position figured out, it's very hard to have success. Just kind of what are your thoughts now watching the way quarterback is done in today's NFL? Yeah, and I think that that's a very good point because um, you have to have a quarterback that can stand in there because you're not you're going to get five guys out. You're going to not protect them. So he has to be smart. He has to get rid of the ball on time. Um uh, you know, and I look at the Steelers and, and what they did because they were putting guys out short routes. It's like a run. I'm like, no, it's not a run. Like, it's not. It just doesn't have the same effect. So um, I understand what it is, and I love watching the guys who can do a little bit of both. And that's why I think that when you watch what Tom Brady was able to do this year was amazing. And even Fitzy. Fitzy has some old school in him when he plays. And um, I love that. Like, he's – he still can get under center. He can still drop back, wing it, but he's comfortable in the shotgun. So I think the teams that are always really good have a great mix of, you know, there's probably a little more shotgun than, than under center, but you still have to get in there. You have to let your linemen, you know, come off the ball and go hit somebody. I mean, that's what they're built for, right? That's what they love to do. And so I think the teams that are good have a little mix of that, but, man, it would be nice to be in the shotgun every day. It's like seven on seven in practice, right? You're just going out and you're winging it around, except every now and then you're, you're, uh, you know what's going to get knocked in the dirt. Gus, really appreciate your time so much. Wish you nothing but the best, man. Thank you. All right, Al. Appreciate it. Take care, buddy. All right. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Gus Verrat talking Ryan Fitzpatrick and also talking about Gus's time with the Washington football team. You let me know what you think at Al Galdi on Twitter. You can email me to the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Before we call it a pod on this Wednesday, another loss for the Orioles on Tuesday evening. You had the three-game sweep at the Boston Red Sox to begin the Orioles season. Since then, 7 nothing loss at the New York Yankees on Monday evening, 7-2 loss at the Yankees on Tuesday evening, things have uh, come crashing back down to earth, at least so far for the Orioles in this three-game series at the Yankees. We'll see what happens game three 
Wednesday evening beginning at 6.35. The O's will be throwing their ace uh, to whatever extent he is an ace, John Means, and he was excellent in his opening game start uh, of the season, that uh, outing at the Red Sox last Friday afternoon. New York uh, will be starting Jamison Tyone. But so far, this series has not even been competitive. Uh, the Orioles starting pitcher on Tuesday evening was Dean Kramer. He ultimately allowed three runs in three innings, gave up five hits, a homer, and four singles, and four walks, did have five strikeouts, but he threw just 51 of his 85 pitches for strikes. Now, I will credit Kramer for this. He showed some toughness, some grit in the bottom of the first inning. He got hit on the upper back of a leg by a first pitch line drive off the bat of Aaron Judge on a first inning infield single. For him. And you know, if there's a liner coming off the bat of Judge, it's going to hurt. And I bet that that did hurt. Kramer then issued a six-pitch full-count walk of Brett Gardner to load the bases with no outs. So here's Dean Kramer, a rookie, at Yankee Stadium, bottom of the first inning, bases are loaded, nobody out. John Carlos Stanton is at the plate, and on deck is Glaber Torres, who, remember, went nuclear on the Orioles two seasons ago. Dean Kramer ended up striking out three consecutive Yankees batters to end the bottom of the first. Struck out John Carlos Stanton, then struck out Glaber Torres, then struck out Clint Frazier. That's not easy to do. So it was not a great outing for Dean Kramer, that's for sure. But in a season in which you measure success by progress for younger players, that to me was progress. Like that was a lesson learned. That was an experience for Dean Kramer. You know, you survive getting whacked by a liner off the bat of the mighty Aaron Judge. The bases end up getting loaded, but you escape the jam by striking out Stanton, Torres, and Frazier in succession. Uh, That was a nice job there by Dean Kramer. But yeah, I mean, three runs in three innings, four walks. uh, No, it was not a great outing in terms of the starting pitching. The bullpen for a second consecutive game was a problem. Tyler Wells and Wade LeBlanc on Tuesday evening, combining to allow four runs in four innings, and LeBlanc gave up the big blow, gave up a two-out, three-run homer to judge in the bottom of the eighth. Member, it was in that 7 nothing Orioles loss at the Yankees on Monday evening that you had the grand slam by John Carlos Stanton. Sean Armstrong relieved the starter Jorge Lopez in the bottom of the fifth with the bases loaded and two outs, promptly gave up a two-out run-scoring walk to Aaron Hicks, and then the two-out grand slam to Stanton, the left center, to cap a five-run Yankees fifth. And the granny was truly grand for StatCast going a projected 471 feet. So the two biggest boppers for the Yankees have been all over the Orioles over these first two games. Stanton with the grand slam on Monday night. Judge with the three-run homer on Tuesday night. Uh, Orioles uh, offense, again, basically impotent. Uh, nothing happening in the 7 nothing loss on Monday evening. Very little happening in the 7-2 loss on Tuesday evening. Just seven hits, no walks, 14 strikeouts. You were facing Garrett Cole, who's maybe slash probably the best starting pitcher in the American League. Cole, seven scoreless innings, 13 strikeouts. This is the way things are for the Orioles, okay? I mean, I loved the three-game sweep of the Red Sox as much as anybody, but what you've seen the last two evenings at the Yankees is far more in line with what we're probably going to be seeing with the Orioles as the season progresses. The bright spot for the O's was this reliever, Adam Pletko. I mentioned him on Monday's podcast. Adam Pletko is a guy who the Orioles acquired for cash considerations in a trade with the Cleveland Indians on March 27th. Pletko, in that 4-2 win at the Red Sox on Saturday afternoon, tossed two into third scoreless innings. Pletko on Tuesday evening tossed three scoreless innings. So he's actually been really good for the Orioles so far. Maybe that's a guy they can flip 
as the season goes on. But that, you know, that's, that's pretty good. Five and a third scoreless innings to begin his season in games at the Red Sox and at the Yankees. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. What do you want the Washington football team to do when it comes to potentially trading up in the upcoming draft? I say no regarding going from 19 to 4, paying the price, the exorbitant cost that such a leap would require. But what say you? You tell me. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots more on the Washington football team on Thursday's podcast. Also on Thursday's pod, a full recap of the Nationals' big doubleheader on Wednesday with the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. Dare I say, the depleted Nats, could they actually engineer a three-game sweep, three wins in two days over the Braves? We'll see. At least it's a possibility of the great win on Tuesday. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. I'm proud of the boys. <laughs>